blessing it is to be with you. Happy Sunday. Uh, happy Reformation Day to you as well. I invite you to open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3, and we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 21. Just a glorious text that's before us this morning. We have the blessing and, and privilege of opening our Bibles to God's Word and, and focusing our attention on the second prayer uh, or prayer report uh, from Paul that's recorded in his letter to the Ephesians. Uh, last week our eyes were on Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 to 13, and it seemed like Paul was initially uh, getting ready to lift up a prayer on behalf of the Jewish and Gentile Christians living there in Ephesus, uh, but he was distracted with thoughts of, of God's grace. Uh, if you guys are anything like me, um, you've probably experienced similar interruptions in your prayer life. Unfortunately, my interruptions aren't nearly as holy as, as Paul's were, um, but I think we've all probably settled down to pray uh, with the best of intentions, and then something has distracted our attention, and uh, our prayers were placed on, on pause for a while. Uh, that's exactly what happened to Paul in Ephesians 3.1. Uh, he started that verse with the words, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, and then he hit the pause button on the VCR of prayer, and then he was taken on this Holy Spirit-inspired digression uh, with thoughts about God's grace. He was truly amazed by God's grace toward him. And Paul explained that it was all by God's grace that a mystery, which had been previously hidden in other generations, had now been revealed to him. As he clearly stated, the, the mystery is that the Gentiles were fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Uh, this was a revolutionary truth for the church there in the first century, and it's an encouraging truth for our church even today. Paul had also explained that God demonstrated his grace toward Paul uh, by giving him a ministry of sharing the gospel message with the Gentiles and telling everyone about that incredible now-revealed secret uh, that Jews and Gentiles were reconciled, that they were part of a new race, which is the church. Of course, that reconciliation didn't happen as a result of the Jews and Gentiles sitting down together and smoking a peace pipe. Uh, it didn't happen because they had really skilled negotiators on both sides of the aisle. Uh, it didn't happen because they had learned this brand new theory about race or that they somehow had suddenly become woke. Uh, no, the, the reconciliation uh, between Jew and Gentile didn't happen until first they were reconciled to God uh, through Jesus Christ, through faith in Christ. Those who did not believe in Jesus remained at enmity with one another and with God. And the same can be said with, about those who are apart from Christ today. Uh, both their vertical and their horizontal relationships are broken. Uh, they have no hope. Uh, they are without God in the world. Well, in the, in the text that we're looking at this morning, Paul gets back to his originally scheduled program. Uh, he gets, he's back to his prayer, and he provides a truly phenomenal prayer report uh, to the Ephesians in which he gives them the contents, he shares with them the contents of his prayers for them on, on their behalf. Let's read through that passage together. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 to 21. And follow along as I read aloud. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, 
that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that him who was able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the very word of God. Robert Murray McShane uh, was a minister of the Church of Scotland in the middle of the 19th century. He had a close personal friend who was also a fellow pastor by the name of Andrew Bonar who wrote um, McShane's biography. And and he captured uh, really what is a, a convicting but also a very encouraging story of the life of McShane, who was a man who was completely sold out for Christ. McShane's life was one marked by physical weakness and and chronic illness, but it was also marked by great spiritual strength and by unswerving faithfulness to God. McShane had a profound effect on the life of his own church, on the life of the churches in in his vicinity, and really on the entirety of the Church of Scotland in the 19th century. And that was despite the fact that he died uh, while he was still 29 years old, hadn't even reached his 30th birthday yet. McShane is credited with saying, what a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. That bears repeating. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. Basically, McShane seemed to be conveying the truth that our private prayers really reflect uh, our heart's condition. And just like our checkbooks and our screen time can reflect our values and our priorities, just like the conversations that we have in public can reflect the thoughts that are on our minds, so too our private prayers to God reflect what is, what is going on in the very core of our existence. And the text that's before us reveals an Apostle Paul who was on his knees before God in prayer for the third race, the church. And as we look intently into this prayer report, my hope is that we will all be better equipped to to pray for one another, uh, to pray for God's church, and that this would be for our good and and for God's glory. This passage can be broken down basically into two sections. First, uh, verses 14 and 19, we have Paul's prayer report. And then secondly, in verses 20 to 21, we have Paul's praise. Let's start by looking at Paul's prayer report. And that can serve as point number one on your outlines if you're taking notes this morning, Paul's prayer report. But before we get started going verse by verse through that section, let's just consider what Paul is doing in this portion of his letter. As I mentioned earlier, this is the second prayer or prayer report that uh, is recorded of Paul in this letter. Let's look back to Ephesians 1 to see the first. Uh, Back to Ephesians 1, probably best to look all the way back to verse 3 at the very beginning there. After a short greeting, uh, Paul began his letter to the Ephesians by saying, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then what follows in the next 11 verses is just an incredible expansion of that thought, of of that truth, of the ways in which God has blessed us in Christ, all of these spiritual blessings. We see in in verse 4, the blessing of election, 
Uh, down in verse 5, we see the blessing of adoption. In verse 7, redemption through the blood of Christ and forgiveness of our sins. In verse 10, we see the plan to unite all things in Christ, those things in heaven and those things on earth. In verse 11, we see that we have an inheritance in Christ. In verses 13 to 14, we're told that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit, or that that inheritance is sealed with the Holy Spirit, is a guarantee of our inheritance. Perhaps in recognition of that truth, of the immensity of that truth, then Paul follows that teaching with a prayer. Uh, Paul says, for this reason I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. And then he shares with the Ephesians the contents of that prayer on, on their behalf. In light of that truth, shared in, in verses th- 3 to 14, uh, he told them that he prayed God would give them the spirit of, of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of God. And he prayed that the eyes of their hearts would be enlightened. Uh, he prayed that they would know the hope to which they had been called, the glorious riches of their inheritance, which was theirs, and the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. In short, Paul taught, and then he followed up his teaching with prayer. He prayed that his readers would have the ability to fully comprehend, not not just intellectually comprehend, but to, to really grasp deep down in the depths of their soul the truth that he was conveying to them. Then he did the same thing in chapters 2 and 3. Two times he taught on on these three words, alienation, reconciliation, and transformation. First in verses 1 to to 10 um, of chapter 2, he described that vertical alienation uh, and reconciliation and transformation that existed or that was brought about um, by faith in God. There was that vertical uh, alienation that existed between God and man. And then in verses 11 to 22, he he described the horizontal alienation, reconciliation, and transformation between man and man, uh, namely between Jew and Gentile. And then at the beginning of chapter 3, Paul was set to to pray for the Ephesians in light of the truth that he had shared with them. But then he was distracted with those thoughts of, of the mystery that was revealed to him and the ministry that was given to him. And we looked at that last week in verses 1 to 13. Now in verses 14 to 21, we see the contents of Paul's second prayer for those Ephesians on their behalf. Let's start by looking at verse 14 now. It says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. We can stop there. The normal prayer posture at that time, during Paul's time, was was standing. Um, and, And Paul wasn't trying to teach some new way of praying. He wasn't trying to teach that this is the correct posture for prayer, but he was simply, I think, overwhelmed by the truth that he had just given them and, and the, the heaviness of his prayers that he says that he bows his knees before the Lord. In verse 15, before revealing the content of that prayer, Paul writes a short description of the Father before whom he bows, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. Now, the interpretation of that is, is a little bit sticky. It's a little difficult. There could be a couple different ways to look at that. Uh, first, Paul is either saying that, that the human experience of, of having a father is because of the fact that we have a, a heavenly father, and so he was maybe doing a little bit of a wordplay. Uh, the word that for father sounds a lot like the word for family, and so um, Paul often used wordplays in his writing, and that's possible. But I think if we translate um, every family there, 
to read actually at the whole family, which really fits with the context of what he was writing, then Paul was saying that he bows before the Father from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. And I think that this interpretation really fits better with this context. As we get now into that content of the prayer, I think it's, it's helpful to kind of think uh, of these prayer requests that Paul is lifting up as maybe as, as rungs on a ladder or, or steps going up a stairwell. Uh, there seems to be an upward progression of Paul's thoughts as he's praying for the Ephesians. Each thought is, a, is another step on, on the ladder. Now take a look at uh, verse, three, or verse 16 of chapter 3. It says that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. The first rung on the ladder represents Paul's prayer for strength. It's a prayer for strength. First, make note of the fact that Paul is asking for God to strengthen the Ephesians according to the riches of his glory. Paul's not asking that God would give from the riches of his glory, but according to the riches. And it's an important distinction to make. I think in a previous sermon, I used the illustration of John D. Rockefeller to help make that distinction. Uh, There was a time when Rockefeller was the richest man on the planet. Um, Some of his most memorable photos are are of him wearing this really nice suit, and he's got his top hat, and he's bending at the waist, and he's he's giving a a coin to a, a poor boy on the streets of New York. Of course, the photo was, was staged in hopes of trying to improve his public image, um, but we do well to note that, that in giving the boy a coin, uh, even if it was a silver dollar, Rockefeller was giving from his wealth, uh, from his riches, and not giving according to his riches. If he was giving according to his riches, he could have bought that boy an entire city block uh, for him and for his family and for his friends. When Paul's praying for God to strengthen the Ephesians according to the riches of his glory, it's an incredible request because the riches of God's glory are infinite. But that's exactly what Paul's praying for, and it's exactly what the third race needed. It's what we need today. The church body in Ephesus was comprised of of former enemies who needed strength. They needed the power from the Holy Spirit to maintain unity in the church. Many of these new believers uh, were formerly uh, worshipers of Artemis. Uh, They likely had family members who still worshipped Artemis. And so they needed the strength of the the Holy Spirit to keep them faithful to Christ. Paul was sensitive to and aware of the needs of the church in Ephesus. And he didn't want them to to merely survive. He wanted them to thrive. And so he asked that God would give to them according to the riches of his glory. Notice that what Paul did not ask for in his prayer. He did not ask for their comfort. He didn't ask for their safety. He didn't ask for their prosperity or even relief from, uh, from poverty. He didn't even ask for their physical health. Based upon the contents of this prayer, we can see that Paul was far more concerned for their spiritual health uh, than he was for their physical health. Paul was looking not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, the things that are eternal. As he notes later in this letter, Paul knew that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Let me ask you this, was, was this struggle against spiritual forces, was that 
unique to the first century church? Uh, was this a unique reality that was exclusive only to the church in Ephesus? Or is it something that we find ourselves in the midst of even today? Are we in need of being strengthened with the, the power of the Holy Spirit as a first century church was in Ephesus? I, I would say that we are every bit as much in need of the strengthening of the Holy Spirit of God in our inner beings. Every day we face an onslaught of attacks and, and temptations from the enemy, and we don't have the strength to overcome that on our own. Rightly did Martin Luther conclude, did we in our own strength confide, our striving would be losing. If we're trying to face each day without the strength and power from the Holy Spirit, we are fighting a losing battle. The truth should shape us and should really shape the, the content of our prayers. Paul's awareness of the spiritual needs of his church drove him to his knees before the Father to pray that they would be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit according to the riches of God's glory. But that was not a request unto, its, unto itself. Look at verse 17. It says, So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. The purpose of being strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit is that so Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith in Him. It's really an encouraging verse. Romans 8 is really helpful here. Romans 8, verse 9 in particular, Paul was writing to believers, and he, and he said to them, you, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the, the Spirit of Christ dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. And so, this really helps us to see that Paul was not praying for the salvation of the Ephesians. Uh, he was praying for their sanctification. They, they already had Christ because they had already believed, but he was praying for Christ to be dwelling in their hearts. Uh, that word that Paul used, which is translated as dwell in the ESV there, it means to settle down or, or to make oneself at home. Uh, and it's an incredible reality that the Spirit of Christ would settle down and make himself at home in our hearts. Robert Munger wrote a little booklet called My Heart, Christ's Home, in which he pictures the heart of a Christian um, as a home with, with many rooms. It's admittedly, it's a little bit sappy, um, but it, it really kind of helps us see, um, I guess, to get an image in our minds of what this might look like with Christ dwelling, making a dwelling place in our own hearts. The Christian invites Jesus into his library first, and, and he, he calls that place the study of his mind. And embarrassed by what he finds on his own bookshelves, now the Christian asks Jesus to, to make room, or to make that room what it ought to be. And so Jesus was happy to oblige. Uh, he took all of the, the filth that was on the shelves, all of the images that were on the walls. He got rid of all of those, and he placed, replaced those with the books of the Bible. In the dining room, Jesus finds things like money, and prestige, and, and fame, and fortune on the menu. And he encourages the Christian that if he wants food that will really satisfy, he'll seek the will of God, and will, which will give him lasting pleasure. Room by room they go, and as Jesus cleanses every corner of sin and, and foolishness until he is finally able to set down, settle down and to make the Christian's heart his dwelling place. The truth that Christ dwells and the hearts of believers is, is one of the greatest encouragements that we have as believers in Christ. It's a source of great strength 
as a source of comfort, as a source of, of peace, that Christ would dwell in our hearts. We saw back in Ephesians 2 that in Christ, we're all being built together, these living stones that were being built together as, as a dwelling place for God. But it's also true that God wants to dwell in us individually as well. In John 14, 23, Jesus said that if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him. Here's the key. And we will come to him and make our home with him. This means that we must live our lives in such a way that Christ would feel at home in our hearts. In light of the truth that Paul had shared with the Ephesian believers, he prayed that the church would be strengthened with the Holy Spirit so that Christ may dwell in their hearts through faith. He prayed for strength. We would do well to pray for strength for one one another as well and for ourselves. Paul didn't stop there, though. On the next rung of the ladder, he also prayed for love. We see that in uh, Paul's prayer for love at the end of verse 17 and into the beginning of verse 19. And that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Paul started this portion of his prayer by asking that the church would be rooted and grounded in love. Uh, His request was that their lives would be marked by love, that love would be their lifestyle. He mixed metaphors there, uh, which would get you a lower grade in eighth grade English, but it really helps us to understand what it was that he was praying about. Uh, First, he used an agricultural metaphor, asking that the church would be rooted in love. And then he used a construction metaphor, asking that they would be grounded or established in love. So like trees, believers are to send their roots deep down into the soil of love. When the storms of life come, we are to remain steadfast in that love. And like buildings, we're, we're to have a firm foundation of love. We're not to build our lives on, on shifting sands, but we're supposed to be grounded in love. And this is completely logical that Paul would pray for this for the Ephesians uh, because of the fact that they were really surrounded by hatred. In fact, hatred really defined who they used to be apart from Christ. It's a sure footing in love that prevents us from being carried by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and by craftiness and deceitful schemes. The love that Paul was praying for here, be mindful of the fact that this was not the, a lifetime channel kind of love, right? I mean, this, this was not the, the butterflies and unicorns ethereal kind of love. The, Paul that, the, the love that Paul was praying for here was the blood-dripping kind of love, the sacrificial death on a cross, the, the atoning sacrifice kind of love the propitiating kind of love that Christ demonstrated for us. He who knew no sin became sin for us because of the great love with which he loved us. 1 John 4.10 says, In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Love of Christ is so incomprehensible that it requires prayer for strength to comprehend it. And it's impossible to understand that love apart from the cross. Paul had just taught the Gentiles that although they were once far off, that they were brought near by the blood of Christ. Paul taught them that 
Christ in his flesh broke down the wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile. Paul taught them that they had been reconciled to God in one body through the cross. There is no greater demonstration of God's love than that he sent his son to die for sinners on the cross. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul prayed that the church would have the strength to comprehend this. And he gave four dimensions of this love to help the readers see that really the vastness and the completeness of the love of Christ. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? The love of Christ is broad enough to embrace the entire world. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The love of Christ is long enough to last forever. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says love never ends. It began in eternity past and has no end in the eternity that lies ahead. The love of Christ is high enough to bring us to heaven. Ephesians 2.6 says that God raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. The love of Christ is deep enough to bring him down from glory into the, the depths of earth. Philippians 2.8 says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. As Paul prays for the readers of his letter to know the love of Christ, it seems that he recognizes the impossibility of this endeavor, apart from God giving the strength to comprehend the breadth and the length and the height and the depth. Even though we cannot fully comprehend that which is infinite, we shouldn't stop at trying to comprehend this. We shouldn't stop at making this our very life's pursuit, searching out the love of Christ. We have to meditate upon the countless ways in Christ, Christ showed his love to us. We meditate upon his incarnation. We meditate upon his sinless life, his sacrifice on the cross, his resurrection, his promise to be with us always, his promise to return, his promise to build a place for us in eternity with him. Now we come to the final rung in the ladder, which is, is Paul's prayer for fullness. Uh, we've seen this upward progression, how, how the strengthening of the Holy Spirit leads to the indwelling of Christ, which leads to an understanding of the love that surpasses knowledge, which now leads to the, the fullness of God in us. We see that in verse 19, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That's a head-scratcher. <laughs> What does that mean, to be filled with all the fullness of God? I, t I took great comfort as I was studying and, and meditating on this passage that almost every commentator that I read was really befuddled by this part as well. Uh, MacArthur said, to be filled up with the fullness of God is indeed incomprehensible. Uh, even to God's own children, it is incredible and indescribable. There is no way this side of heaven we can fathom that truth. We can only believe it and, and praise God for it. What Paul seems to be praying for is really the culmination of sanctification. God's goal in saving us 
as to make us like himself by filling us with himself. This is truly a staggering thought, uh, one that requires the strength of the Holy Spirit to be working in us, in our inner being. We need the indwelling of Christ in our hearts to understand this truth. The word that Paul uses there to, to make full, uh, it speaks of, of total dominance. Uh, a man who is filled with rage is dominated by anger. Uh, somebody who is filled with the love of money is dominated by greed. And so to be filled with the fullness of God is to be dominated by God. To be filled with the fullness of God is to be completely emptied of ourselves. It's not a matter of having some of God and, and some of us. That's not what it means to, be, to have the fullness of God. If we are truly to be filled with the fullness of God, that means that he must increase and we must decrease. I think it was only by experiencing that fullness that Paul could write to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's Galatians 2.20. It's a transformative truth for us. This is the Christian life. It's no longer about us. It's about Christ. We live in a culture that is defined by self-centered individualism, self-fulfillment, self-esteem, self-improvement, self-confidence. The scriptures do not encourage any sort of stealth aggrandizement. Is that a right, right word? Uh, any sort of elevating of self, either over one another or over God, certainly. If, if we encounter any sort of teaching that elevates self, we have to know that it is not coming from the scriptures. It's coming from the world. Now, we are to find our, fulfill, our fulfillment and our contentment in Christ. But rather than highly esteeming ourselves, we need to highly esteem Christ. Our confidence does not come from anything that we can do. Our confidence comes from what Christ has done for us, and it comes from the promises that he's promised to us. If we are to experience the fullness of God, we must begin with an emptying of self, with a dying of self. It's no longer we who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. In order to be filled with all the fullness of God, we must set aside the old self and put on Christ. In verses 14 and 19, we see the contents of incredible prayer. On behalf of the readers of his letter, Paul prayed for strength, for love, for fullness. Like rungs on a ladder, this prayer, it takes the reader up higher and higher and closer to God. Now in verses 20 to 21, we see Paul's praise. Uh, point number two, Paul's praise. Look at verse 20 with me. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. As is often the case in, in Paul's writing, he, he followed up high theology with high praise. And we saw that in the passage that Keoki read from us from the end of, of Romans 11. After detailing uh, truths about God for 11 chapters, one truth after another, indicative truth followed by indicative truth about God in the letter to the Romans, then Paul switches from theology and he moves right into doxology. He moves into praise. 
verse 33. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How unscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Truth about God results in praise to God. A great thoughts of a great God result in great worship of that great God. Up to this point in his letter, Paul was stretching the reader's understanding of who God is and all that he has done for us in Christ. And as a result, he breaks out in praise to God. And even that, uh, even this praise is instructive for us. Look at verse 20. We see this progression of thought. God is able. God is able to do. God is able to do abundantly. God is able to do far more abundantly. And God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask. God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. God has blessed us in so many ways in our lives. I'm sure that we have probably seen this lived out in our own lives. I know I have in mine. Uh, after 22 years in the Navy, uh, I didn't know to, to think or to ask uh, to become a pastor. But by God's grace, he's, been, he's given me a ministry uh, to share the good news of Jesus Christ with some of the best young ladies and some of the best young men on planet Earth, or, or at least in America, at least in Hawaii. All right, at least on Oahu. Uh, well, at least within close proximity of Malama Market, okay? But you, you guys, you see what I'm saying here. Uh, this was not something that I asked for, but it was God's grace being poured out upon me. Uh, and it's an amazing, well, it's an amazing truth. Well, in light of, of all that God is, is able to do, it's only fitting to praise him. And that's exactly what Paul does in verse 21. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, uh, forever and ever. Amen. This doxology is a clear indication of the immensity of the prayer that Paul prayed on behalf of those Ephesians, on, the, on behalf of the readers of his letter. And, and through this prayer that's recorded for us, that we have access to, we see that this is God's will even for us in our lives. It's God's will. It includes that we should be strengthened with power through the Holy Spirit in our inner being. God's will for us is that Christ would be at home in our hearts, that he would dwell within us. His will is that we would be rooted and grounded in love. Uh, God wills, uh, he, his will for us is that we would have both an intellectual and an experiential knowledge of the love of Christ, the breadth and the length and the height and the depth of that. God wills that we would be filled with all of his fullness. This is an amazing truth from an amazing God. Now, before we close in a word of prayer, and perhaps as uh, an immediate application of this text, I want to uh, encourage you or I guess remind you that this Saturday uh, at 8.30, we are going to have uh, our church prayer meeting. It's every first Saturday of the month, and I want to encourage you to 
participate in this, to, to come in and be part of this prayer time that we have. Um, as I think about, as we think about the contents of Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, we, we should think about the contents of our own prayers and, and really even our devotion to prayer. In Acts 2, we're told that the early church was devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and to the prayers. In Acts 6, we're told that the apostles devoted themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, I'm not trying to guilt anybody into attending a, a church prayer meeting, uh, and I'm not trying to foist some sort of requirement upon you that's not included in the scriptures, um, but I, I know the benefits of a church that prays together. I've experienced the benefits of praying together with the church body. I simply want to encourage you, uh, if you're able to make it at 8.30 on Saturday, come and pray with us. Uh, if you're not able to be here, uh, if you're not able to, to be here in person, I just encourage you, set, set aside that hour. Set aside 8.30 to 9.30 on Saturday morning and just pray for your church. Pray at the same time that the church is meeting to pray as well. Uh, there, there is great benefit for the church to be praying together. There's great unity that we experience in that. Last week, Chuck Lind uh, encouraged us to pray for the church in Thailand. Uh, the recent events in Afghanistan certainly compel us to, to be praying for the church there. Uh, we should be praying for Pramen Choi and his family and his ministry in Fiji. Uh, Pastor John is away at training. Uh, we should be praying for him and for his family as well. Uh, there's no shortage of needs that we can take to uh, the one who is able to do uh, far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, I, th I thank you that in Christ Jesus we have boldness uh, and access with confidence to bring our prayer requests to you. And may we not neglect the blessing of such access. I ask now that you would be strengthening the saints of NBC and that all the saints around the world as well, with the power through your spirit in our inner beings so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. May we truly have the strength to comprehend the love of Christ. And may you be filling us with all of your fullness. And for those who do not know Christ, we ask that you would grant them repentance and belief today. Uh, convince them of their need for Jesus. Compel them to turn from sin and to turn to Christ. We trust that you are able to do this and much more than we can even ask or think. Now, Father, to you be the glory in your church and in Christ Jesus forevermore, through all generations, forever and ever. Amen.